Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the 14th episode of the All Things Unity podcast. Happy New Year, and well, best wishes for 2023. I hope you enjoyed your holidays and spent some quality time with your families and friends. I know I did. And in the last episode, we wrapped up chapter 2 of the Pragmatic Programmer. We talked about reversibility, tracer bullets, prototyping, domain-specific languages, and estimation. I think it was a really interesting episode if you have not listened to it yet. So go back because there's some valuable information in there. And today we are going to start chapter 3 called the basic tools. If I remember correctly, this is the point where they start recommending the use of the Perl programming language for all sorts of cool things. Although I guess Perl is kind of... Well, that is the wrong word, but not used that much, I guess, at this point. But I don't really use it. Do you? Yeah, you can let me know. Um, Before we start, let's quickly check the topics that are in this chapter to get an overview of what we are uh, dealing with in this episode. It starts with a paragraph called The Power of Plain Text, which is all about human readable data versus binary, for example. Next up is a chapter called Shell Games, which explains why you need to feel comfortable and be good using the terminal or shell or term or uh, console interfaces. Next is power editing, which is all about IDEs and picking a favorite and know that one very, very well. Source control, no further explanation needed, I guess. But yeah, TLDR, use Git. Um, next up, debugging. The philosophy and strategies and we also get some information about the well-known practice of rubber ducking which is actually coined in this book i think and the next topic is text manipulation which describes how programmers should know some language to transform plain text into something useful and this ties really nicely into the last topic of this chapter which is called code generation which is, yeah, basically a different form of text manipulation. Um, So those are the topics we will be discussing in this episode. And since I have time to record now, and I don't want to leave a large gap in between two or more episodes about the same chapter, I'll dive into the entire chapter now. Um, So it's probably going to be a lengthy episode. But what the heck, I can't wait. So let's get down to business and start with the introduction to this chapter. Andrew and David start this chapter with the following sentence, and I quote, Every craftsman starts his or her journey with a basic set of good quality tools, end quote. And I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. They give the example of a woodworker and his tools. He has a saw, some chisels, drills, braces, mallets, and much more. Those will be his or her fundamental tool set. As he or she gains more skill, more complex tools will be added to her arsenal, like, let's say, chainsaws or table saws or any other kind of power tooling. And if the craftsman would have started with the power tools, he or she would never have mastered the basic ones. This makes perfect sense, right? Is this any difference for software developers? No, of course it's not. Using the basic tools begins a process of learning and adaption. Each one has their own, well, personality and needs special care, handling and sharpening. 
And over time, these tools become like an extension of the craftsman's own hand. They become part of their brain, their way of thinking, and even, well, probably remain the preferred set of toolings over high-tech power tooling they can get now. For example, there's a reason why Vim is still that popular, or Emacs, for example. People just love these basic tools. Um, the authors say something really cool next as well, and I'll just quote them. Um, tools amplify your talent. The better your tools, and the better you know how to use them, the more productive you can be, end quote. And well, yeah, this is amazing, and I couldn't agree more. Mastering the basics really is very useful and boosts productivity. And I can give you a nice example too. Like every software professional, I use source code control. I'm an adept user of Git, and I know it pretty well, I think at least. And <clears throat> I'll have to search for things sometimes, but I'll be able to fix most issues in Git. Even to the point people come to me with all kinds of weird Git problems they have themselves. Well, why? Well, because I only use Git from the command line. I know, yeah, that's just me. I'm using all the low-level commands and thus I'm pretty well educated on what they do exactly. Don't get me wrong, um, every time I read through some of the docs about Git, I, <laughs> I often learn something new. Um, so I'm far from the guru people think I am. But the fact remains that because I use the console, I have a better understanding of all the individual commands. And last year, I studied this, this Git blog called Git from the Bottom Up, which dives deeply into how Git works. It's a fascinating read, and I strongly encourage you to read it if you want to know more about Git. I'll leave a link about it in the, short, in the show notes. So, let's get back to the book. As you gain um, experience in your vocation, and with your tools, you'll add new, more complex tooling, like power tools, to your toolbox. And you will probably be adding them regularly, always be on the lookout for a better way of doing things. Especially when you get yourself in a situation where, well, your current tools really can't cut it. There's still a lot of software developers who will only learn a single language using a single IDE, like uh, uh, for, for Java and IntelliJ, and shape their career around that. There's nothing wrong about that, it's just not the pragmatic approach. Um, so alright, we have covered the introduction to this chapter, so we can get into the first paragraph, the power of plain text. So, <clears throat> what about plain text? Well, of course, we know as pragmatics programmers that our base material is not wood or metal, it's knowledge, and as an industry, we have decided that the best way to document and persist that knowledge is plain text. We write code as text, unless you are some obscure binary wizard, of course, but I highly doubt that. We don't use just plain text, uh, of course. We also have like design schematics or UML or... Uh, or other kind of uh, diagramming. However, some of them... Uh, also can be expressed as plain text and then be generated, like plant URML or even like good old LaTeX. Um, and by the way, if you want to check out a very interesting presentation about plain text, I highly recommend the talk by Ian Cooper. Um, I'll find it and I'll add it to the show notes. Um, <clears throat> but let's take a step back. What exactly is plain text? Well, I would define it as human-readable text in a non-structured way. 
There's also structured plain text like JSON or XML or maybe even HTML. And why do we use plain text? Well, because we need to edit and read it. Um, we could have written it in a binary format, but yeah, that wouldn't be very useful. Um, so we raise the abstraction level and make it human readable. Um, are there any drawbacks to plain text? Well, yeah, of course, there's always trade-offs. Um, <clears throat> it often takes up more disk space, um, but do we even care about disk space anymore at this point? Um, but the second part is maybe more important, uh, and that's it is um, plain text is more computationally heavy. So your software must spend more resources and time to interpret all the plain text, since there's probably some conversion going on somewhere. Um, this is the reason why Google, for example, implemented the protocol called protocol buffers, for example. Protocol buffers are an, well, an alternative communication pattern to JSON, which uses a binary, yeah, let's call it serialization, uh, to communicate between processes. Um, and yes, these processes can be distributed, so they can be sent over the internet, of course. And in the book, they talk about how some developers might think that writing out a lot of data as plain text means uh, by means of uh, telemetry is a, uh, a bad idea because it exposes too much of the application's internals. <laughs> How much has that changed, right? I mean, that's in the book, but look at that now. Telemetry is like, it's in the golden days of cloud computing. Uh, it's all about telemetry and traceability in uh, of, of event-driven architectures. So this is such a point where the book dates itself. Remember, it was released in 1999, and even back then, the author said the following, and I quote, Some developers may worry that by putting metadata in plain text, they're exposing it to the system's users. This fear is misplaced, end quote. Um, they're really visionaries, right? It's pretty impressive that they knew that back then. So, we have these two drawbacks, larger files and computational intensive. What are the benefits then? Well, Andrew and Dave mentioned three of them. Insurance against obsolescence, leverage, and easier testing. The next part of the paragraph is dedicated to these three uh, benefits. So yeah, let's take, in a, take a look. The author start this section off with the following sentence, and I quote, Human readable forms of data and self-describing data will outlive any other forms of data and applications that created them, period, end quote. And yeah, I agree. Imagine if all your Unity 3D meta files were in binary. How would you do any custom processing? And as a matter of fact, in the past, they actually were binary. Although it was a choice if you had uh, the pro license, I think. But I remember the days when I started a new project and forgot to swap the binary format to YAML, and my merge requests went all to shit. Oh boy, those days were annoying. And I guess that's where my fears about using the Unity 3D inspector come from. But yeah, to get back to the book, I indeed agree that plain text will mostly outlive any binary data, because it can be more easily reused or repurposed. An example they give in the book is also a pretty nice one. It's about legacy software that returns plain text instead of binary or vice versa. 
If you have to deal with legacy software, it is very convenient to have access to plain text over binary because you can adapt more easily, or even reverse engineer the legacy system from its in and output, if you don't have access to the source code, for example. So they also rightfully note that there are differences between human-readable and human-understandable data. Human-readable data is mere plain text data, yet if you cannot make sense of it, it's still worthless. Imagine you have a JSON file that contains data like field 1 is 10, field 2 is some, yeah, some, some ID, some good, and field 3 is true. What information do you have now? Not very much, right? So naming these fields to actually mean something is required to make it useful. And now David and Thomas mentioned something uh, I did just a few seconds ago. Using plain text offers you leverage. By this they mean that you, well, virtually every tool in the computer universe can operate on plain text. Think about it. They're totally right. And even cooler is the fact that uh, our source code control systems are specifically designed to work with plain text files. You can use these tools to track changes in literally every plain text file you can imagine, like source code, configs, and even documentation. And when everything is plain text, you are also able to exploit this with your testing practice. If all you s your systems receive plain text as input and output, um, then you can write intermediate tools or middleware to analyze that data and, well, do something useful with that. And according to David and Thomas, back in 1999, plain text will be the lowest common denominator as means of communication over the internet. They specifically mention XML, but I estimate we communicate more in, in JSON than XML nowadays. Even so, uh, gRPC calls do use a binary format uh, by means of protocol buffers. But okay. Um, my personal opinion about everything about plain text is, well, yeah, I think they are right and I agree with them. A lot of what we do currently in the modern uh, software world is, well, plain text. It's source control, source code, and uh, YAML, JSON, XML, and even our high-tech infrastructures are written in specific DSLs like uh, ARM or BICEP templates for Azure or Terraform and, and others. Uh, plain text uh, has really dominated our industry and will probably remain so because it's just far too powerful to be replaced with anything else. Maybe on the security or performance end uh, of this discussion, um, we might want to change plain text into something else. But uh, a binary format, that doesn't mean it's secured. I mean, a uh, simple example, I can turn a string into a base 64 uh, encoded bytes, but then change it into a string again. Uh, it's There's no security there. All the data will remain the same. Remember that uh, as a security like 101 lesson, <laughs> Um, but let's get back to the book and dive into the next paragraph called Shell Games. So this paragraph is basically Andrew and David emphasizing the fact that we as well mere mortal programmers must learn how to work with the terminal. They compare the terminal to a woodworker's most basic tools like a good solid reliable workbench. Without a proper workbench, a woodworker can't really get things done. 
Um, the same goes for programmers. Without our terminal, we are nowhere. Well, maybe that's a bit exaggerated. I manage myself pretty well on my Windows laptop without using a PowerShell, for example. But on my personal laptop, however, I use Linux and I do really use the terminal there. Yes, yes, uh, I know the Windows uh, has this uh, uh, Ubuntu subsystem now, but I don't really use it as much as I would like to. I don't know, it's just not one of my habits yet. And the others say that your shell or terminal or console must be one of these tools you are most comfortable working with. They say you can do many things with the terminal like launching applications, debuggers, browsers, editors and utilities. You can also search for files, querying uh, the status of your, your system and, and filtering output. I'm always amazed by the power of the, the grab command, for example. I always seem to forget its syntax, but <laughs> you can even add like macros to your terminal uh, for tasks uh, for you to perform often. Uh, I mean, a long time ago, a colleague of mine made this simple bash script that streamlined his gits commands. We were working a lot with submodules, which are essentially like nested, uh, nested git projects. But when you work with these submodules, you also need to deal with updating them to their uh, committed state in the main project. So it can be yeah, really cumbersome to add all, um, uh, to, to manage all these, these submodules. So we added like a, a little batch script to allow us to update and reset and commit files to them very quickly. Really useful. Um, currently, I don't use it as much, but yeah, it's, I remember it was really useful back then. And David and Andrew say that for developers that are only ever used to GUI-based tooling, this might all be a sound a bit extreme. Um, but they have a very good argument. And they say that when you are using GUIs, you are missing out on the full capabilities of your environment. And yeah, think about that. With a UI, you can only ever do the things that... Uh, in some predefined way or order um, of what you can see on the screen. But if you are simply firing commands through an API, you can combine them in whatever shape or form you want. And when I read this back in 2018, it really hit me. I never really used the terminal for anything other than Git, uh, but that changed, obviously. Uh, don't let yourself be constrained by the people who designed some nice system or, or, or user interface. Use their API and do whatever makes you happy. And yeah, I understand that this, this is also a bit extreme, um, but sometimes you really have to. And they also mentioned something what I consider pretty funny, and that's the following. And I quote, A benefit of GUIs is WYSIWYG, which means what you see is what you get. The disadvantage is WYSIWYG, and that means what you see is all you get, end quote. <laughs> that's totally true. If the UI just shows you these options, that's all you have. And next, they provide some examples of tasks they would do in the terminal instead of the UI. They show the command, and they're equal using the UI. It's interesting for you to check out by yourself if you have the copy of the book. I won't go to, into these since uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult to cover that in a podcast. Um, they also mentioned the fact that the command shell on Windows is inferior to Unix counterparts. 
yeah, even in 1999, they knew that. Um, and even back then, there was only like the CMD, uh, but now there's PowerShell. And I think, uh, I still think they are inferior, and not necessarily because they lack functionality, but because of the difference in command and syntax. I mean, why? I can use the terminal on Linux and macOS interchangeably, but on Windows I always have to use my search engine to get the right commands. It just sucks. And I know I'm biased here, but I just think it's annoying. Deviating from, yeah, let's call it standard, is just annoying. And I'm looking at you too, Internet Explorer and Safari. Um, but luckily, we have the Ubuntu subsystem. And in the book, they are talking about installing Sigwin, which is a Unix compatibility layer for, for Windows. And I've tried this before as well, but I never really used it in the end. Um, and they also mentioned some similar software called Uwin, but I've never used that before. So, yeah, that's about it for the plain text paragraph. What do you think about this? Do you think plain text is the holy grail of software development and configuration thereof? I do. I think it has taken great steps in the past decade of cloud computing. Plain text and infrastructure as code are running the show right now. I don't see that changing anytime soon, to be honest. And additionally, uh, Unity is driven by plain text configuration by its meta files and all other kinds of specific Unity files like scenes, prefabs, asset files, and even the, the animators files and stuff. There's just so much power in plain text that you, yeah, you can't easily ignore it. So this part of this chapter is all about the most important tool as a game developer, your IDE. And whatever you choose, you must be able to manipulate and navigate text effort effortlessly. This is the basis for all programming you will ever do. And personally, I'm a big fan of JetBrains IDEs, since they are basically all IntelliJ. When you have mastered IntelliJ, you practically know all of them, uh, with some minor differences here and there. But let's see what the authors have to say in this paragraph. The first section of the paragraph is about learning one editor and learning it well, very well. They start the section off with the following sentence, and I quote, we think it is better to know one editor very well and use it for all editing tasks, code, documentation, memos, system administration, and so on, end quote. And I partly agree here, since I think this is where the book uh, uh, shows its date. Um, back in the day, simple text editors like TextMate, VI, maybe Vim, uh, which are by no means simple, but what I mean is that they are text editors, but not IDEs. IDEs are far more powerful than text editors, since they often include many features that span the entire project directory. Think about all the static analysis your IDE does. When you rename a function, you will see compile errors straight uh, away in your IDE. In those text editors, you won't see that, because they're not doing any static analysis in the background. And of course, there are far more interesting features nowadays, even in text editors. Um, they can also be extended to death with plugins. I think the phenomenal success of VS Code never seems to stop. A bare metal VS Code is basically unusable, but with the right plugins, you can deploy to you can deploy code to Azure instantly by pressing a single button, for example. How cool is that? 
there's just so much you can do with those editors right now um, that choosing one yeah, might be difficult. So choose one that fits your needs. And as I said, I'm a fanboy of JetBrains products, but just because I memorize the keybinds, I can work really quickly this way. And in the book, they give the example of moving the cursor around to select things or position it. Uh, you can achieve the same thing with just the keyboard, which is far quicker since you don't have to stop typing. And Andrew and David say that if you practice a lot with one single IDE, uh, the necessary keybinds will be a reflex. It will all be muscle memory. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, how many times have you tried your IDE's keybinds while typing in uh, Microsoft Word or uh, maybe even Confluence? I know I have. They also mentioned something interesting, and that's to choose an editor that is available cross-platform, since you can use it everywhere then. Um, their advice is for Emacs, VI or Vim, or Crisp or Brief, and the latter two I had never even heard of or used. And modern IDEs come with a lot of very interesting features. Many of those weren't even available a couple of years ago. And I suppose uh, lots of modern features were created by means of plugins. I mean, the fact that ReSharper for Visual Studio did so well proves my point. And as Uncle Bob always put it so nicely, ReSharper makes Visual Studio almost usable. <laughs> and I think that's pretty funny, because he's right. Without ReSharper, Visual Studio just lacks the modern refactoring tools anyone should be able to use. Without them, I really feel crippled. I don't, do, I don't want to manually rename stuff. I mean, come on, man. So, your IDE needs to be configurable. You must be able to set it to your own uh, preferences. We've talked about how most IDEs allow you to edit the shit out of the environment. Not just themes or window sizes or fonts, but also additional static analysis or custom macros. Just configuration is not enough. We really want extensibility and programmability. We really want to make an IDE our own. Luckily, most of this is already done by the plugin gods. So we have syntax highlighting, auto-completion, auto-indenting, generative uh, like boilerplate code, compilation, debugging, and even IntelliSense straight out of the box. How, if that's not powerful, then what is? And in the book, they say this about syntax highlighting. And I quote, a feature such as syntax highlighting may sound like a frivolous extra, but in reality, it can be very useful and enhance your productivity. <laughs> and I mean, it sounds like uh, there existed some kind of discussion or, or fight about this. But what most, yeah, what modern IDEs don't support syntax highlighting nowadays? I don't even think you can turn it off. Um, well, maybe you can, but who does? I mean, who doesn't want syntax highlighting? Seems stupid. Um, so the next section is about productivity. And they start off with the section uh, with something that sends chills down my spine. And I quote, A surprising number of people we've met using Windows Notepad utility to edit their source code. This is like using a teaspoon as a shovel, simply typing and using basic mouse-based input to cut and paste logic is not enough." End quote. 
And I mean, what the fuck? Even back in 1999, this can't have been the way to work. I, it sounds surreal to me. There were far better tools uh, like Dan, like Emacs or VI. And in the book, they also give the example about Java's many import statements. They say that in Emacs, you can alphabetically order these with a keybind shortcut. How can't you can't possibly do that in Notepad? I mean, another example they provide is the fact that most editors uh, help streamline common operations. Like when you create a new file, you can select the template and give it a name, and it will automatically generate some of its contents, like a class file. Notepad can't do that either. Still, what the fuck? And the last feature they mention is the auto-indenting functionality of the modern IDEs provide. This is really important, as we have discussed in our episodes about clean code, even more so in indent-sensitive languages like uh, Python or F-sharp. Imagine if you had to manually indent all of this. I mean, uh, in Notepad. What the hell? I bet Notepad is an invention by the flying spaghetti monster in the sky to seduce mere mortal programmers to join the cult of the Pastafarians and start the summoning ritual or something. Yeah. Um, That's it for this uh, part of the chapter called Power Editing. Um, I think choosing an IDE and learn it well is a very good piece of advice. so which is your favorite one? Let me know and send me an email to podcast at allthingsunity.com. The next section of the book is all about source code control. And the authors start this section off with some hard truth. And I quote, One of the important things we look for in a user interface is the undo key. A single button that forgives us our mistakes. It's even better if the environment supports multiple levels of undo and redo, so you can go back and recover from something that happened a couple of minutes ago, end quote. Yeah, they are totally right. How far would you come nowadays without undo functionality in any kind of software? Imagine what programming had to be like back in the days when you needed to write it down on paper and then by hand, uh, just hand it in to some operator. When you made a mistake, you had to erase it and hopefully she, yeah, probably a she, would have made sense out of the mess you made. But source code control systems are more about than just undo and redo. They preserve history, not for a couple of minutes, but for the entire duration the project is alive. If used correctly, you can go back to whatever state you desire from last week or month or even last year. So source code control systems allow you to take undo and redo to the next level. also provides the users with lots of insights uh, since it tracks changes so you can compare one state to another one and see exactly what has changed between them if you have ever done a pull or or merge request you know exactly what i mean Uh, when merging you can see the diff between two branches of the source code but not just the collaboration is a big plus also the metrics you might be able to extract from it for example Using source code control, you're able to find out where hotspots are in the source code. These hotspots are the files that change often. 
from that you can draw conclusions if that's if that's there's the the code is designed or maybe there's a design problem uh, why are these files always touched in every pull request this is valuable information uh, and it wasn't really possible to the scale and granularity before source code control system and of course, the collaboration uh, and release aspect of the source code control is also very important. Uh, so with Git, for example, you can manage what codes get released by simple branches. Often there will be like a production or master branch, a development branch, and maybe even feature branches, or maybe uh, like QA branches. And uh, well, over the past few years or so, Trunk-based development has been yeah, becoming more and more popular again. Uh, Trunk-based development is where you have only one branch, master or main, and you always commit and push to that branch um, and never, yeah, never fork or branch out. Although this works perfectly well in, let's say, uh, traditional code bases like web apps or microservices, it might not really work for games since, well, manual testing is still required uh, because there's no clean way to test if graphics are glitchy, uh, colliders are not working, or shaders are missing, for example. This involves manual testing, and for that you often create different branches for specific feature builds. But in more business-oriented software, which is simply, yeah, code, you can automate all of that uh, and thus you can take more advantage of trunk-based development. If you want to learn more about trunk-based development, I encourage you to read the book Continuous Delivery by Dave Farley. It's an amazing read, and I'll put it in the show notes, don't worry. And the last thing about source code control systems is that you are able to manage your releases better. In Git, you have the ability to tag a certain commit, so you can... Uh, so you might tag a random commit with the semantic version of 1.0.0. I won't go into the word workings of semantic versioning. Uh, maybe that's a topic for another episode. Yeah, but anyhow, you can now, for as long as that tag exists, go back to that random commit you checked out and by a rememberable name. So it's 1.0.0. So by just saying git checkout 1.0.0 you have checked out that random commit which is not that random anymore uh, you probably already knew this but yeah that's cool right you can also hook up um, uh, your build pipeline to sort code control systems so when you merge uh, to main or master uh, when it's successful uh, or when a tag is created you kick off the build pipeline and let's say within the next 35 minutes your new build is there automatically compiled in the background and if you have not take a look at unity's uh, cloud builds uh, uh, solutions or maybe even uh, unity's custom build server so okay um the trick with source code control is well to always use it let me repeat that always use source code control I cannot tell you how many times I've seen forum posts or posts in Slack or Discord of people who are trying to revive their files because they didn't use Git. If they are lucky, some IDEs actually keep local history of all your files in some, some Unity project or solution, like JetBrains IDEs 
or maybe if you have stored it on some cloud storage you might be able to get them back because they keep history like dropbox for example but this is nowhere near as powerful as just having your files in git so this the authors say really they drill down on the advice to always use some form of source code control and i'll extend that and say always just use git because that's the industry standard and now I hear you saying, what about plastic SEM? And yeah, you're right. For large products, uh, you might want to use plastic SEM. But for the majority of Unity devs around, Git, maybe with large file support enabled, is perfectly fine. Um, the fact remains that you should use some form of source code control. So if you're thinking about plastic SEM or Git, you are definitely on the right track. The trick is now to choose one and use it as soon as possible. But yeah, what if your team is not using any form of source code control? Well, well, <clears throat> I would sacrifice a raw meatball for each member of the team and then pray for the spaghetti monsters to smite them by slapping them in the face with one of its floppy tentacles. <laughs> yeah, jokes aside, what would you do? David and Thomas say the following, and I quote, Shame on them. Sounds like an opportunity to do some evangelizing, end quote. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, you really need to do some evangelizing. Just like Obi-Wan. Take the high ground and introduce them to source code control systems and teach them how to use it. Organize like lunch and learn meetings or some other kind of lightweight training. Maybe even involve people higher up in the company since source code control will save them a lot of grief, time and money. Business people will see the benefits of using source code control once you explain the concepts to them. And don't forget to mention that source code control is free software, it's open source. Maybe the hosted versions are not free, so GitHub or GitLab or, or Bitbucket or whatever. But if you want to host it yourself, it is definitely free. So, the next section of the book is called Debugging. Um, we have talked about debugging before in earlier episodes. And as Uncle Bob puts it, debugging is not a skill to be desired. And I totally agree. However, you must be able to do it. And in this section, Andrew and David will talk about this uh, psychology of debugging and the mindset you need to have to do it effectively. They will also explain and coin the now world firmest term of rubber ducking, at least in the software world, that is. So let's not waste any more time and dive into it. So they start off this chapter uh, with a little history lesson about where the first, uh, the world's first bug in software in the software context came from. It was, of course, Rear Admiral Admiral. Dr. Grace Hopper, back in the early days of computing, uh, when a computer was like the size of a room, and Grace Hopper observed that the computer was misbehaving and found that the cause of this misbehavior was a bug being stuck in the electronics. So there was a literal bug in the system. And by the way, Grace Hopper is also the inventor of the COBOL programming language, but maybe even more importantly, the inventor of compilers. She had the idea that humans don't need to write actual binary or assembler. We can write 
uh, at a higher level of abstraction and then turn that into machine code by means of uh, automation, aka uh, compiling. This led to her invention of the COBOL programming language in the first place. Cool, right? She's a true legend. Um, in modern days, we still have bugs in our system, but yeah, there are other kinds of bugs. They manifest themselves in different ways, like misunderstood requirements, flaws like uh, critical coding errors, or mistakes in forms of bugs. And even now, compilers, linters, or static analysis tools are rather limited at finding them. Yeah, maybe ChatGPT is able to help you hunt down the bugs. I haven't really tried it, but uh, it sounds rather interesting just thinking about it. Um, you also have to accept the fact that most, if not all, software suffer from bugs, however strict your process might be. Even doing TDD, uh, bugs can still slip through. So, the next section is called the psychology of debugging. And uh, they start this uh, section off with a very nice little paragraph. And I'll just quote it. Debugging itself is a sensitive, emotional subject for many developers. Instead of attacking it as a puzzle to be solved, you, might, you may encounter denial, finger-pointing, lame excuses, or just plain apathy, end quote. And apathy means lack of emotion or interest, by the way. I didn't know. And they are right, aren't they? I mean, how many times have you been tracking down bugs and when you... Uh, finally found it, you check the git logs and see who put the damn thing in there. I know I did. And often, not for nefarious reasons, sometimes I just ask the person who wrote the bug into the code for some context so we can make a proper fix of just, yeah, just treating symptoms. So not necessarily finger pointing, but I can remember situations where that happened. Uh, you should embrace the fact that debugging is another form of problem solving. This is something we as developers are really good at, and thus we should attack it as such. When you find a bug, you should not blame the person. You could, however, ask him or her for some additional information about the piece of code so you can fix it. So focus on the problem, not the blame. Especially when dealing with devs more junior than you. Don't scare them off by telling them their code is shit. Maybe even pair with them uh, to fix the problem so they can see how you fix it and yeah, they can enjoy some additional mentoring. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the debugging mindset uh, as it is the next section. And according to uh, Andrew and David, part of the debugging mindset is to turn off or at least lower your defenses that protect your ego and tune out any presumes uh, that you are under. And of course, get yourself comfortable, because this could take a while. And above all, remember the first code of debugging is don't panic. <laughs> yeah, sometimes other people will be breathing down your neck while you're trying to fix a bug. This can be really stressful and cause people to panic. Yeah, this reminds me of a meme that says how not to write bugs into software with an image of uh, North Korea's leader watching over the shoulder of some developer. Uh, and unfortunately, I guess there might be some truth in that picture. But it is important that you do a step back 
breathe slowly and actually think about the problem in your own pace. Uh, and next they have a really funny little paragraph which says, and I quote, If your first reaction on witnessing a bug or seeing a bug report is, that's impossible, uh, you are plainly wrong. Don't waste a single neuron or a strain of thoughts that begins, but th that can't happen because it quite clearly can and has happened, end quote. Yeah, do you recognize this? I, I certainly do. I call bullshit. I mean, that's what you say about bugs, right? No, that's impossible. Um, we've all been there, right? Just remember that QA is just doing their jobs and they're not out to get you. Um, and next, they give us some tips on how to start debugging. They say that before you start, make sure that you are working on code that compiled cleanly without warnings. <laughs> Compiling without warnings in Unity 3D is utopia you will never ever reach. Uh, but I guess that's true for all modern software because we heavily depend on third-party code. But my advice uh, for a very first step in debugging is make sure you have the correct branch checked out and you are connected to the right backend or database. How many times have you debugged some code for a long time without any luck of reproducing the error only to find out you are on the wrong branch? I have. Um, you could also find yourself in a situation where you got the correct branch but are targeting the wrong environment, uh, like uh, the dev backend versus QA or live. This still happens to the best of us sometimes. It sucks, but yeah, when you're not precise about things, uh, yeah, these things can happen. And the authors also mention that they often set compiler levels uh, as high as possible. And I doubt they dare to do that in the current day and age. Maybe back in 1999 this was an option, but now and I, nowadays with all this open source software, however great it might be, don't get me wrong, you simply cannot set the compiler warnings to the highest level because you will be overwhelmed and spammed by them. You can't impossibly uh, fix all of this. Uh, but on the other hand, if you are developing some kind of library for yourself without any or well, many uh, external dependencies, you could pull this off. But when you are building a product, you often cannot. Um, the reason why they tune up the compiler warnings as high as possible is because they don't have to spend time on problems. The compiler already found uh, while debugging uh, or compiling. And David and Andrew say that they want to focus on the hard problems. The easy ones are the ones found by your compiler to static, static analysis. And by that, we end this episode because we've been going for long enough. But we will continue this discussion uh, next time. What do you think about the topics discussed? What do you think about the power of plain text? Do you think uh, they are right or is it overrated? And if so, how about all the plain text configuration we see in Unity with its meta, scene, prefab, uh, and asset files, and many more? And what about all the configuration in the cloud? Which IDE do you pref uh, prefer and are you proficient with? Um, 
And do you use a terminal or console interface? And if not, learn some console and really drill down into your favorite IDE and console. And learn all the hotkeys and uh, how the refactoring utilities work, for example. These will speed up your development big time. And also, refactoring tooling is, of course, a perfect example of code generation. Um, what do you think about their approach to debugging and the mindset of, uh, that's required? Overall, um, let me know what your thoughts are about this chapter thus far by sending me an email at podcast at allthingsunity.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave me a review and click some of the stars in there. Yeah, that would be highly appreciated. And if I'm not on your favorite podcast platform, you can let me know and I'll do my best to get it on there as well. So for now, uh, thank you for listening. See you next time. And remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.